Brethren, our, our God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory. May he feed us with good bread today in our daily portion. Brethren, if you would open your copy of God's holy word to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This morning we are going to be starting um, looking at a, a challenging topic. We have spent several weeks looking and rejoicing in the righteousness of God, as Paul calls it, unto salvation. We've camped on verses 16 and 17 and seen uh, the greatness of the glory of God uh, and the unashamedness of Paul for this gospel, which is power. It is the mediation of the power of God to save completely and totally to the uttermost those who are believing present tense, those who are believing and trusting in him and Jesus Christ, holding fast to him, that this gospel and holding fast to it, uh, the righteousness of God in Christ is their salvation and transforms them, gives them legal status of no condemnation and gives them uh, a sure hope of heavenly glory because this righteousness is revealed, it's being revealed day to day, hour to hour to the righteous, to the saints from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just will live by faith. But brethren, as we consider, as I remind you, the, the dual purposes of Paul, while the focus in Romans is on the righteousness of God to justify the ungodly and to bring them, it's God's righteousness and imputing and imparting Jesus Christ and all that is in him freely apart from works. I thank God for that, brethren. We need to understand just as light and light shines out and is seen most clearly against a dark background, so too the glory of God and his righteousness in salvation is understood in many ways by considering the righteousness of God in condemnation. And we're going to be looking at that today. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read Romans 1. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. We're going to focus on verses 18 to 20 today, but let's read Romans 1, 16 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. May He bless it. You may be seated, brethren. I was reading recently a quote from Pastor Ray Ortland, who happens to be the father of Dane Ortland, who you sisters know, you've been reading a book by Dane on Gentle and Lowly, a PCA pastor. But his father was a well-known uh, elder uh, pastor as well, Ray. And he wrote these words, I want to begin here today. He says, 
Our real problem is not our sins in themselves. If our sins themselves were the problem, we might muster the willpower to pull out of this nosedive. But the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ, begins with some really bad news. Our sins only provoke a bigger problem, the wrath of God. Our real problem is not our sins, but God. He is angry. He isn't going away, and there's nothing that we can do about it. If God is against us, who can be for us? But here's the good news. God has made God himself our salvation. Let me say that again. God has made God our salvation. He did it at the cross. God has provided a way of escape from God's wrath in God, the Son. We run from His wrath in faith by running toward His grace in Christ, all of which is righteousness. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Brethren, that's well said. I want you to see today, and Paul would have you to see today, that the revelation of God's righteous wrath against ungodly and unrighteous sinners must move us, us who have tasted the righteousness of God unto salvation freely in Christ. It should move us to walk in holy fear, to flee day by day from His righteous wrath into the arms of Christ to lay hold of His righteous grace freely offered to us in Jesus Christ day by day, and to manifest God's own concern, compassion, and care for lost sinners who are under His righteous wrath so that they too may be saved. Brethren, that is the burden I think that the Lord would have you to see today as we consider His wrath. Let's just consider today, I'm going to look at this under two key headings that kind of work together. The one I would say is, the righteous wrath of God revealed. And then we're going to see, secondly, that His righteous wrath is against the reality of human sin and God's glory that's being concealed. Let's consider these two points. Number one, verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God, literally in the Greek, just like uh, we read earlier in verse 16 and 17, 17 it says that the righteousness of God is being revealed from day to day, from faith to faith. So God is continually, day by day, revealing to the world His righteousness in salvation, His righteousness in Jesus, His righteousness and His faithfulness to His covenant to those that have faith in Jesus. So too, He is day by day, the sense here is that the the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven over and over and over again against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So let me start off by asking this. Why is understanding God's wrath so important? Why is Paul camping on this here? Why is he going to devote verses 18 all the way down to 32 to this vivid description of the wrath of God against the nations and their unrighteousness? And number one, I want you to see is that to rightly diagnose, it's important that we understand God's wrath and and the the true nature of, of the cancer, of the evil that resides in the heart of men by nature, um, the degradation and downward trajectory of it by nature unto uh, destruction. 
uh, is so that, number one, that we would rightly diagnose and discern the true scope and nature of man's condition outside of Christ. What we're going to see in verses 18 to 32, brethren, uh, as, as we look at these weeks, we're going to see if we have any doubts about, okay, how depraved by nature, left to themselves apart from intervening grace, what is man's true condition? What does it mean that say that men are lost? Brethren, Paul's going to give us a very vivid description for us to understand why the righteousness of God into salvation is so vitally, is so vitally glorious when you consider it against the darkness of the righteousness of God in condemnation and wrath. Okay. This will guard us against superficial diagnoses of man's condition. It will guard us against false, trivial remedies of saying peace, peace, when there's really not peace. Making light of sin. Brethren, we're going to see when we get to chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace will abound all the more. But brethren, we will only understand and revel and appreciate and share that grace of God and the gospel of Jesus to the degree that we truly understand the, the, how much sin has abounded and how evil sin is in the sight of a holy God and how much it is worthy of His just condemnation. Secondly, understanding God's righteous wrath, as I said, will also give us the ability to rightly see and savor the great power and glory of God's remedy for man's condition in Christ. Right? Brethren... For you who are in Christ, <laughs> when you consider verses 18 to 32 and you say, you know, this, this, this would be me. This was and would be me left to myself. Suppressing truth and unrighteousness, justifying, excusing, loving darkness, going from one degree of wickedness to another and despair unto destruction and ruin. Our response to that should be say, oh, praise the living God for righteousness of God unto my salvation. Because it's really ugly and bleak. But how great is the grace of God freely given and received to us in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let's not make light of the diagnosis of how bad the cancer and the evil is in man. So secondly, let me ask this. What is, we've asked why we need to understand this wrath. Let's ask, what is the wrath of God? When we talk about the wrath of God being revealed and so on, what do we mean by the wrath of God that's being revealed? Number one, brethren, I want us to consider that God's wrath is holy. It's righteous and it's not arbitrary or capricious, unlike ours often, right? Two things God's wrath most assuredly is not. Number one, it's not some sort of impersonal process of just cause and effect, right? Where God just, like, like, like a machine, just this happens and therefore God does this. Brethren, he's not a cosmic robot. He's, he's not a cosmic AI, Brothers and sisters, God is a God who deeply emotes. <laughs> he is a God who feels. When we talk about his wrath, it's not just a process. It's deeply felt wrath, even rage, and anger, righteous anger, holy anger. And this is the second thing. Well, on the one hand, it's not... As I said, it's, it's not an impersonal process of cause and effect. On the other hand, it's not capricious. It's not arbitrary or vindictive outburst of rage and temper. God not just flying off the handle. 
right? You know, when something happens and we often in our sinful anger, when we respond unrighteously, this happens and we just blow up all over the place, right? Brethren, the Bible describes the Lord our God as one who is slow to wrath, abounding in steadfast love. He is not easily provoked. He is extraordinarily patient and long-suffering with the unrighteousness of men and their suppression. Um, we, we need to see this. God's wrath is holy. It is right. It is not an impersonal process, but neither is it just this vindictive outburst of rage and temper. It's controlled, steady, deliberate, determined. God's wrath is the fruit of his holy and uncompromising antagonism, righteous antagonism, necessary antagonism, and hatred of evil, of all that is contrary to his holy and good nature. Since God is altogether holy and righteous by nature, in his very essence, he can in no wise negotiate with evil or evildoers. He can't. He can't just kick sin under the rug. Let's just cover it. If it's going to be covered, it must be covered by an atoning blood, not by just kicking it under the rug. Can't do it and be true to himself. God's wrath arises from a holy and righteous jealousy for the glory of his name and fame and for all of creation's flourishing and joy in his presence and ways. Again, we read in the scriptures, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, right? Exodus tells us, keeping covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations of them that love me. There's, there's his great grace, but visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of them that hate me and despise me, who don't keep my covenant. There's his wrath. You see that his grace is so much greater than the wrath, but his wrath is real. Those that despise him, he will visit it upon them, and he will do so righteously because he is jealous for his holy name and fame in the world. And brethren, it is right that he should be. God should be and must be praised, must be delighted in, savored. That's his glory and that's our good. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoying all that he is for us in Jesus Christ in every situation. Remember Phineas in Numbers 25 when we think about the wrath of God when there the children of Israel are across in Moab, across the, across the Jordan, right? And they had gotten themselves into some serious uh, immorality with the Moabite women. And they were even bringing them openly into the camp and defiling themselves. And we read there that God's wrath began to break out against them. And then we read also about one Phineas. You remember Phineas? Phineas, went, when he saw the plague going around and destroying the people of God with their corruption, he was and grabs the spear. He goes into the tent of the one particularly who had brought this Moabite woman blatantly, without any shame or repentance, brought her in to defile the people. He takes that spear and boom! And we look at that and say, <gasps> that's not what God said. God said, Phineas had a holy zeal for my name, and I'm going to bless Phineas because he was conscious and aware and concerned for my name, for my glory and my honor amongst the people of God. He will be blessed. Brethren, love and zeal for a holy God is what stopped God's holy wrath. 
Think of the implications of that. Un unlike God's love, God's wrath is not one of his, this is an important point. Unlike his love, though, which is fundamental, we read in 1 John, God is love, right? God is light. Unlike his love, God's wrath is not one of his essential perfections. I want to get this, this is important. Wrath is not intrinsic to God, but it is the inescapable fruit of his holiness, which is intrinsic and is at the heart of his nature, holy, holy, holy. It's the, so his wrath is the inescapable fruit of his holiness against sin, and is, it's also the fruit of his holy love for his glory and for men's true, holy, righteous, flourishing, blessing, and joy in him, which is what they were created for. Do you see that? We were made to live in fellowship, holy fellowship, blessed, joyful fellowship with the holy, holy, holy God. That's, that's our chief end. As holy as God is, so hot must his anger be against all uh, that when his image bearers who willfully impugn his glorious holy character and name across creation through their unholiness and unrighteousness, God has to be provoked by that. And he is provoked by that. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing his essential holiness. Well, let's ask this. Against whom or what is his wrath being revealed? That's what it says here. His wrath is revealed from heaven. So from his heavenly throne on earth, it's revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men specifically who suppress, who hold back his truth revealed among men and in their consciences, who hold back and resist his truth by their own unrighteousness. When we think of these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness, ungodliness, the fundamental idea is that which is contrary to God himself, right? contrary to his character. Think, for example, then of the first table of the Ten Commandments. Ungodliness, those who, those who willfully, knowingly uh, countenance other gods before his face in their idolatry. Those, those who set up idols either in their presence and their visibly or set them up in their hearts that are uh, opposed to the sovereign supreme reign of God, of the living God who is in their hearts. They set up lesser gods, lesser affections, and they seek those things for their prosperity, for their protection, for, for whatever. And they functionally bow down and worship those things. Maybe not literally, but they live their lives as if those things were supreme. They take the name of the Lord their God in vain. Let's stop and think about that in terms of what comes across our TV screens. <laughs> They reject and despise his holy day. They make light of it, just like anything else. You know, just treat it like any other day. That's ungodliness. And then he talks about unrighteousness. This is the second table of the law. Unrighteousness, whereas ungodliness is that which is fundamentally contrasted against God's nature. Unrighteousness is that which is fundamentally against mankind and against our, is horizontal, against those made in God's image. And again, contrary to God's covenant and his law, right? His righteous laws to govern man. Ungodliness comes first, and it includes and leads to unrighteousness. We're going to see this as we go down verse 8 to 13, 18 to 32. It's ungodliness in men's heart that then leads them on this death spiral down in unrighteousness toward men. 
because they've already uh, crushed the image of God in man and in themselves, so they begin to treat other men like animals as not who are image bearers, and it just gets worse and worse. John Stott said this very well at one point. I want to quote here. He said, Scripture is quite clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. It is the attempt to get rid of God, first from the conscience and then from the creation. It's the attempt to get rid of God, and since it's impossible to do that, it is then the determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. Right? Isn't that what the ungodly do? They live as if they had functionally gotten rid of God. The fool has said in his heart, There's no God. He doesn't see. His eyes don't behold. What I do in the darkness will remain in the darkness. (laughs) The converse is also true, though. The essence of goodness is, in fact, godliness. So let's think about the opposite. To love God with all of our being and to obey Him with joy is not just because is, is the essence of godliness. God's wrath towards men is not just because men do wrong, though they know better. God's wrath towards men, it is because in their unbelief and their own unrighteousness, men make an, an a priori decision to live for themselves rather than to live for God and others by faith toward God. And therefore, they deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. That's a startling diagnosis. Brethren, you know it's true. (laughs) We make ourselves gods after our own image, and we bow down and live for that. You know the old adage, we've all heard this, right? God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, brethren, I want to remind, I want to say first of all, That is true, but only true for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. For you who are in Christ Jesus, yes, does God hate your sin that he made a blood atonement for? Yes, but he loves you, and his love towards you will not change because it is rooted and founded on Jesus. God is love. Praise God. But brethren, let's also not make trite of the fact that while it's true for certain that those who are in Christ, you are in a sure state of grace and peace with God through Jesus' full atonement and and by your union with Jesus and believing the gospel of Christ, you are safe, no condemnation. And you walk in the light and you're cleansed from your sins because He loves you, the sinner. But for those outside of Christ, brethren, let us not misunderstand. God is angry with both the sins and with the ones sinning. For example, 14 times in just the first 50 Psalms alone, we are told that God is angry with or hates the wicked. Not just their wickedness, but He's angry at the wicked. We read Psalm 7 earlier. God is angry with the wicked. He makes His bow ready. It's on the string. His eyes behold the things they do, and his heart revolts. Those who are unbelieving, who resist his righteousness and his righteous ones in their continuing and unrepentant sin, God is angry with them as well as their deeds. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests both on sin, Romans 1.18, but also and this was our text at the, on our front today, on the sinner. Look at John 3, 36. 
He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Brethren, those outside of Christ, God is angry with them and their deeds. But let's look secondly and lastly at the reality of human sin and God's glory concealed. This diagnosis, why is God's righteous wrath being revealed? As I said, it's because men suppress the clearly revealed truth and their moral unrighteousness. And the scripture, Paul says here, it's willful and it's unexcusable because God has revealed his righteousness in them. He's revealed it to them in creation through the things he has made and he's revealed it in them. Chapter 2, he's going to talk about how God has written it on their conscience, their thoughts accusing or excusing them, right? God has written the knowledge of himself on their conscience. He's written it in all creation so that they are without excuse. There's willful and culpable suppression of God's righteousness and truth in their conscience by choosing to go on living in unrighteousness. And it will metastasize, as we'll see, and lead on to becoming a wholesale, wholly hardened of enemy. No longer creatures acting in his image, but dumb creatures, animals, hope, hopeless and doomed to his wrath. They are described in Scripture as dead in spirit, darkened in mind, defiled with a seared conscience, a corrupted heart, and even under demonic control, though they don't realize it. There, verse 19 and 20 describes them as being under willful and unexcusable suppression of truth of God's glory and idolatry. So not just in their unrighteousness, but in their idolatry. Look what it says here, the way Paul describes this here. This is, this is staggering. He says that the righteousness of God, what may be known of God is revealed. It's manifest in them. God has shown it to them. And then in the creation of the world and so on, so that it's without excuse. Brethren, God doesn't believe in atheists. When we talk to people, we do not grant the, the starting point that they don't know whether there's a God. The Bible tells us they know there's a God. They know that they are living in unrighteousness against Him. Their conscience bearing witness, the law written on their heart testifying. Brothers and sisters, we point them to the God who is, who has revealed himself in his creation. Specifically, Paul calls out two qualities here. He, he calls out here um, that God specifically, his, um, yeah, he, he, verse 20, his eternal power in Godhead. What is that? What does it mean that his eternal power? It means that by looking at the creation, looking at this world that is made, nobody can say... A, that it made itself, right? Nobody believes that. I don't care how much somebody, somebody will say, I'm an evolutionist. I don't believe it. They know better. As we've said, you can go to the seashore and go look at that beautiful sandcastle on the beach. Nobody in their right mind will go look at that and say, my goodness, look what the waves washed up last night. How beautiful and, and perfect, even a moat around it. By pure chance, people don't believe that. How much more than the, the creation of the world and the complexity, both of individual components as well as the intercomplexity of all its related parts. Brethren, people know that there is a God. They can see his eternal power on display. 
They suppress it in unrighteousness and they justify all their wickedness, pretending there is no God because they don't want to acknowledge. There is power on display. And not only that, but he says, not only his power, but his eternal Godhead, right? What does he mean, his Godhead? This is a word that only shows up one time in the New Testament. But the idea is this. Not only does the world review reveal the power of God, it reveals the character and the wisdom of God. The world's not just a chaotic display of power. It's a, it's a perfect testimony, even in a fallen condition, to the infinite wisdom, right? The wisdom and the righteousness of God and the way it's made. No human mind could conceive of this. Look at the wisdom and the power of God on display, brothers and sisters, and rejoice. But they are without excuse. Many people will try, you know, to assuage their consciences, and they will try to do good things. And we think, well, I know some people who are outside of Christ who make no professions of faith whatsoever, but they do some good things. What we need to understand, brethren, is that even outwardly apparently kind and beneficent acts by unbelieving men are simply means of ultimately placating their conscience, striving to uphold and justify themselves rather than humbly confessing their sins and their need of God, submitting themselves to God's righteousness. What people do is they try, as Paul's going to go on in chapter 10, he's going to say, not submitting to the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own righteousness, right? They think, if I can just do a little good, help a lady across the street, I'll feel better about myself. My conscience won't bother me. And surely God, if there is a God, surely he will be pleased with that. Brethren, they make little of God. They mock his holiness. They mock his way of righteousness by faith freely given in Jesus refusing to believe and trust in Jesus as their salvation. They try to make their own salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is an affront to the living God. The just will live by faith. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Brothers, that's just a simple reality and sisters. So I conclude then just by pointing to this. This awful reality of God's wrath. And I want to turn to where our sisters actually read this past week. I was thinking about this week. Is that while the wrath of God and his righteous condemnation of ungodly men, it actually highlights all for us all the more the glory of his righteousness and salvation. How glorious it is. God delights, Daniel Fuller once wrote, he said, God delights far more in his mercy than in his wrath. Fundamentally, So in order to show the priority of his mercy, he must place it against the backdrop of his wrath. How could God's mercy appear fully as his great, how could God's mercy appear fully as his great mercy unless it was extended to people who were under his wrath and therefore could only ask for mercy? It would be impossible for them to share with God the delight he has in his mercy unless they saw clearly the awfulness of his mighty wrath and His holy wrath from which His mercy delivers them. Praise be to God. I remind you, brothers and sisters, that while God is angry with the wicked, the Scripture tells me in Ezekiel 18, God does not take delight in the death of the wicked, but that they would repent and turn. God is angry. And we may say, how do you reconcile those things? There's levels of the 
of the, of the character of God and his person. We may not be able to fully see, but God is angry with them and their sin, and yet God does not just despise. He is desire. He, is, he, he says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they should return and repent. So too must we, brethren. We're told in Lamentations 3.33 that God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does of necessity in his holiness, but his heart is one of, right, of, one of mercy, that they would repent and turn. God's emotion, his heart is there, and it pleads for them to turn. I conclude by reading to you something just from chapter 7. You sisters have been reading this. There was a quote at the beginning of this that's just worthy of us concluding today. The reason we feel as if divine wrath can easily be overstated is that we don't feel the true weight of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on this, said, You will never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We, all, we are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we'll never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of the holiness of God. In other words, we don't often feel the weight of our sin and the weight of sin in the world because of our sin. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the heart of God is for redemption. So we who bear his image, here's my pastoral exhortation to you. Number one, don't ever, 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 ever allow yourself to slip into suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. Brothers and sisters, even for you who are in Christ, your tolerance for even as we bask in the grace of God, don't make light of sin. Don't say, ever say, oh, it's just a little thing. Sin is awful, brothers and sisters. So is grace abundant. Brothers and sisters, we should have the kind of holy disdain for sin in our lives that God does. And we should be praying then, say, Lord, I don't want compromise with sin. Do what you must do. Cleanse me, purify me, but root it out that I may trust you more and be holy as you are holy. Brethren, that's what we were created for. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Right? This also should drive our care and compassion toward the lost, brethren. When you look around you, when, how do you see your neighbors? How do you see that coworker with whom you work? Day by day, sitting in the cubicle next to him or working with him, what do you think? It's like, oh, well, there's Bob again. You know, not Bob, Sanford, but there's just, there's, there's, there's Jimmy or whoever it is. You know, he's, he's a nice guy. Yeah, sure, he doesn't have faith in Jesus. But, you know, he's not so bad. We get along. Brothers and sisters, do you see him rightly? Do you see that in his unbelief and his rejection of the salvation of Jesus Christ and establishing his own righteousness, that he has set himself against God and that God is angry? But do you see that you're a priest of God in your, right, in your workplace and you have the righteousness of God unto salvation? 
Brethren, let's not go about living day by day as if the lost were just so what? They need the light of God and they need the salvation of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I love the Lord. I know you have the Lord. But I want us to love him as the God of wrath as well as the God of righteousness. Paul says in Romans 12, Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Brethren, if there's ever a word for us in this day in which we live, in which evil is called good and good is evil, evil is made light of, brethren, you who love the Lord, abhor what is wicked. Love the lost. Love what is good in the God who is gracious. And stand fast in the Lord by faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Father, I pray that we would not ever be those that make light of the wrath of God. Because you are holy. And the only way we or anyone can be saved is by a holy redemption, blood atonement of a perfect lamb, the Son of God. Nothing else will do, not the blood of bulls and goats, not our own attempts to justify ourselves and our own righteousness. Father, only humbly submitting to your way of righteousness by faith in Jesus, only to thy cross I cling, empty with my hands I come. Father, naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul we to the fountain fly, wash us, Savior, lest we die. Father, may we be those who love the gospel, and in loving the gospel, may we love the lost and not be passive toward them. Father, help us, we pray, to be people of courage, compassion, and care for those who don't yet know you, even as you have been towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name.